Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Okay, um, we are finishing the book of Titus. So if you would turn to Titus chapter 3, and please stand for the reading of God's word. Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you once again for the opportunity to be here together. Lord, we pray for those who aren't here. We ask, Lord, that those who are sick, that you would be in the midst of, that you would heal. Pray for all of the kids who have started school these last two couple of weeks. Lord, we ask that you would give them grace as they find themselves in a dark place. Protect them. Lord, we ask that you would be with the parents as they come into new rhythm. And Lord, ultimately, we pray that you would be glorified in all that we say and do. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome. My name's Kevin. I'm the lead pastor of Church at the Well. If you're new, I'm glad that you're here. You are welcome here. Um, We are finishing up a book, um, a letter that Paul wrote to an individual named Titus about a church in Crete. And we have gone through this entire journey where there's so much in this book. But here we get to wrap everything up. And ultimately what it's going to come down to is Paul's going to use this last section to say this is the reason that I wrote all of the first parts. Right? And so I I think it's interesting when we talk about like the, the, the trends of the modern church in the United States, preaching is interesting. Like I've been preaching a while now and I've watched different kind of trends. When I was, in, when I was growing up, there was this push in the church to make sure that preaching was completely revolving around application. And so what ended up happening was there was this major shift from saying, when we preach, it's about doctrine. Now we need to move in the application because we've got all of these really heady individuals in the church. They might understand doctrine, they've heard doctrine, but they have no idea what to do with it. And so it became very um, uh, example-based. It became, there were a lot of metaphors that were used. And honestly, it kind of went into an area where for a long time it felt like the church was abandoning doctrine for application. And as you just focus on application, what ends up happening is it becomes kind of entertainment, right, over time. And so I think that it's fascinating that what we're beginning to see is this call within the church in the United States to say, you know what, I, I understand sometimes what I'm supposed to do, but I don't understand why I'm doing it. And so it's become kind of this legalistic idea, and it's enhancing this concept that maybe you can work for your salvation or if you're just a good person, then everything's great, right? I think what Paul does masterfully here is he helps us find a balance. Like if you look at all of the doctrine that we've gone through in the book of Titus, it's intense, it's hard. Last week we just looked at this really amazing explanation of the gospel, the how we were saved, the why we were saved, the what we were saved for. And Paul's going to, he does this in this order very specifically. He gives us all of this really solid doctrine so that he can write what he's about to write here. 
And one of the things that we hear a lot is people will say, I don't know, maybe you've heard this, where you do something as a Christ follower and then somebody says to you who isn't a believer, like, that doesn't seem very Christian or you know, what are the good works that you're supposed to be doing? Where, and some of us, we get confused in doctrine, like where do works come into play? Because it does say in Scripture that as Christ followers, we are to do good works. But it doesn't ever tie good works to salvation. So how do those, things, those two things get married together? What's interesting about the way that Paul writes and preaches is that he never puts works ahead of doctrine. Like if you look at anywhere in Scripture where he's written about works and faith, he always puts faith first. You have to have faith. Faith leads to works. The book of James enhances that, right? All over Scripture, we're reminded that, yes, we are raised up for good works to glorify Jesus. However, without faith, there is no ability to do those good works. And so what we find is that doctrine becomes the motivator for the works, And so when we dive in, if you turn with me to Titus chapter 3, it begins with this. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Okay, what is he talking about? He's talking about what we talked about last week. He He gave this really profound understanding of the gospel last week. He says, why are you saved? You're saved because God is good, and he displays loving kindness. That's pretty awesome to think about. How are you saved? You're saved by the work of Jesus Christ and then the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's pretty awesome to think about. What are you saved for? So that you become a vital member of the body of Christ to glorify him through the power of the Holy Spirit and glorify Jesus in what we do. That's the gospel. Okay? He's saying, look, you have to insist on these things. There is no good news outside of the work of Jesus. We have to grasp that. Because the danger here is to think, well, especially, we talked about this a little bit last week, in this country where we, we get what we earn, we go after it, we have all of these ambitions. There's a reason why I'm actually moving us into Ecclesiastes for the next series. Because I think it's really easy for us as individuals to wrap our lives around what we think is good that actually isn't. And so we have this, this moment where we're, Paul is begging Titus, listen, I'm about to transition here. We're going to talk about works, but you need to make sure that what I just told you is at the prefaces of all of the works that are done. And you go, well, why? Like, why does it really matter? It matters because when we talked last week about God being good and I defined good for you, and now we're talking about good works, it's under the same definition. We can only do good works. It's only good if it's wrapped in Christ. Because God is the only thing good. So when we do the work of God for God in the motivation of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus, we're guaranteed that it's good. And so it's this constant check in our hearts, right? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Motive's important. It is possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason, and God wouldn't necessarily say it's good. And you're like, well, yeah, but what, isn't it better to do what's right for the wrong reason than bad? Sure, maybe, I don't know. But ultimately, as a Christ follower, we should be working every minute, every day, waking up saying, if good works by this definition, based on our faith in Jesus in the gospel, are the sign and the outward display of what we believe and who we truly are, then our work should constantly be changing. We should be looking to do better work, always. Like the challenge ultimately should be as I'm being discipled and you're being discipled and we're walking into relationship with Jesus, how does that display itself out in my life and for the lives of others. Like, I don't know, when's the last time you actually sat down and said, okay, here's where I'm at right now. What good works in the name of Jesus am I planning on doing over the next few months so that I'm actually growing in good works? We don't process that way. A lot of times what we do is we'll go, I'm not doing bad stuff and I'm working on that and I've eliminated maybe some sins in my life and that's all wonderful. But he's saying, hey, replace all of that stuff 
with more activity, with more of doing of good works for the glory of Jesus. Think about the works in Christ for the right reason that you did, say, last year. Compare that to this year and say, has there been any movement? Is there any growth? Are you challenging yourself in it? Right? Like, we're commissioned to go into, I mean, here we're in East Boston, into East Boston and declare the word of Jesus to others. We do that through what we do and what we say. Um, I have been so encouraged lately listening to individuals in this congregation start to get more involved in the community even outside of what's happening here. Like, that's it. That's what we're after, right? I, the church doesn't need to constantly be giving you things to do. As Christ followers, we should be looking, being motivated by Jesus himself to say, what are the needs in the community and how can I meet them for the glory of Jesus, right? So I didn't even ask if I could do this, but like hope, hope's here. Sorry, hope, I didn't ask you if I could talk about you, but I'm going to. Hope is starting a Girl Scout troop in East Boston, okay? I know Hope, and I know that her motivation behind that is an opportunity and motivated by what she believes in Christ. She's going to have the opportunity to impact young girls for Jesus, right? In this guise of the Girl Scouts. We have, I mean, everything that we do here, I don't know if you guys have figured this out yet or not, but everything that we do here is an attempt to show you what discipleship should and can look like. We try not to over-program you because we're trying to push you into the community to do things. The, a big part of our ministry are the coffee houses. The coffee houses, yes, they have, a practical, they have a practical goal, right? The church gets to meet in this space and doesn't cost us anything. That's pretty awesome. They have an evangelistic goal. We're building relationships. But do you know what else the coffee houses should be for you guys? An opportunity for you to dream, to say, what can I do with my gifts in my community that would impact the community for good? That's kind of the bigger picture here. Ultimately, the heart of your elders is to say, take what you're good at and find a place to do it for the glory of Jesus. Sometimes that's going to be plugged directly into the church, and sometimes it's going to be plugged somewhere else. Right? You can go to the gym for the glory of Jesus. Right? You can start a Girl Scout shoot for the glory of Jesus. You can start a business for the glory of Jesus. Everything that we do can be for the glory of Jesus if that's our heart's desire. And I think that's really cool. I know people who do music lessons for the glory of Jesus. Like, if we were just to stop here, I'm not going to, but if we were, and say, okay, what is it that you need to enhance in your life for the glory of Jesus and the good of the kingdom? What would it be? And most likely, you already know. You know. You know, I told you last week, God's will isn't hidden from us. I'm always fascinated when people are like, I just don't know what God's will is. And I'm going to tell you. Here we go. This is it. Are you ready? God's will is for you to grow where you are until he moves you. It's to do ministry where you are until he moves you. It's to embrace those around you and the people he puts in front of you until he moves you. One of the things that I have learned over time is that Christ followers use Jesus as an excuse not to do his work. Well, I don't know if God really wants me to do this. Well, let's ask some questions. Is it for the glory of Jesus? Well, yes. Is it biblical? Well, yes. Is it going to impact others potentially for Christ? Yes, then he wants you to do it. I mean, we can break it down really simple. I don't know if God really wants me to pray. Right? I don't feel like the Holy Spirit has really compelled me that I need to pray every day. And, but we look at Scripture and it says, man, how are you going to function without communicating with your Creator? Right? Of course you pray. Of course you read your Word. Of course you serve, right? 
And this is where Paul makes this transition. He's like, you've got to take all of that doctrine and stop using Jesus as an excuse. One of the biggest excuses that we'll have is individuals who say, I don't know if I should do that. I'm going to pray about it. And then they pray about it for the rest of their life. And I'm like, I don't think that's really what was intended here. We ultimately need to understand that the the purpose and the will of God in our, in our life is to glorify Him in everything that we do. Amen. That's it. It's to glorify Jesus in everything that we do. Everything. Right? For you, for you moms, and I hear a lot of moms, they're like, man, I'm at home with kids. There's so many kids. There's so many kids. There's so many kids. <laughs> I'm like, I, I mean, I can't relate because I'm not a mom. But what I would say is you can raise your kids to the glory of Jesus. You fix that meal for the glory of Jesus, right? You persevere in how you want your child raised for the glory of Jesus. And when you do it for that, you find joy. And that makes all the difference, right? The doctrine's important because it forces us to question what's truly going on in here. It forces us to question, why am I doing what I'm doing? What, what is the reasoning behind this? Because that matters. I'm convinced. It says at the end of time, right, that we're going to be judged. And there's kind of, this is going to be very quick. There's kind of two general judgments, right? So the first is basically separating the sheeps and the goats, right? Sheep and the goats. Sheeps? Sheep and the goats. It's, did you know Jesus? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation? That's the first judgment. And what's fascinating is everybody thinks, oh, the second judgment must be on those who don't know Jesus. Actually, that's not accurate. The second judgment is for those that do. And the ultimate question, if I were to summarize it very quickly, is great, you knew him, what'd you do with him? The first question is about salvation and where you're going to spend eternity. The second question is going to be about what does heaven look like? And you're like, isn't heaven like this perfect place where everything's equal? Well, yes and no. What we do on this earth for the glory of Jesus matters. I'm convinced that it says in Scripture, it kind of gives this like imagery, right? Where we're basically going to take our life, say it's written in a book, right? So like if this first page is my birth certificate and this last page is my death certificate and everything I've ever done is written down in this book and it says that that exists, right? Which means you're going to read things about me that you didn't know about me. It actually says that everything that is written in this book will be screamed from the rooftops. So all those things that you think you hid, (laughs) it's going to be an embarrassing moment, right? But it says that it's going to be tested by fire. So if you can kind of picture this, if this is my life and I set it on the altar and I'm like, okay, go. Fire comes. Whether this is real or imagery, I don't know. Fire comes. Whatever I did that was good, right? Which requires the right purpose, the right motive, and for the glory of Jesus alone remains. Everything else gets burned up. And I have convinced myself that most of what I have done is probably not for the glory of Jesus, even though I think it is. And the things that are going to be left are things that I've completely forgot about. Right? Because I actually did it with a pure heart in every way, with pure motive. It's going to be like, hey, you remember when you helped that lady across the street? And I'm going to be like, no. Well, you did that for my glory. And that's what's going to be left. It says all the wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up with what's left is jewels or rubies or whatever. Motive matters. It really does. It makes a big difference. In fact, sometimes what I have found is some of the worst things the church can do is attempt to do good works outside of the works of Christ. Because it looks like we come across as either hypocrites, as we've talked about, or we come across as just individuals who say you're saved by faith in Jesus, but we have to work for it as well. We need to check our own hearts in this. The saying is trustworthy. We can't abandon the doctrine. We can't abandon the gospel. 
But what does the gospel lead to? Let's read this again. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things that he just said, so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The doctrine leads to good works. The doctrine leads to good works. You're not saved by the works. You display your salvation through the works. And even that is a weird motive because that's not really our motive behind it. The doctrine provides us the motivation. Why do I do these things? Because I can't believe that Jesus saved me. I mean, I do things for my wife sometimes out of the motive of I can't believe she married me. Right? Uh, And that's true. Like, I'm like, I tell everybody all the time, like, I'm married up. Right? There's a lot of guys in here married up. Looking around. (laughs) Like, I'm married up. Right? I, I don't deserve my wife. And there's some things that I do for her out of motivation in going, I am just so grateful that you're even willing to be by my side in this. Right? That's a good motivation. You're motivated by gratitude, right? It's hard to be motivated by gratitude. I can't say, hey, Christy, I'm going to do these things for you because you're my wife if she's not actually my wife. That would be weird and you get away from that person. Right? Creeper. So you say, look, I, I know Jesus. I, I know him personally. I know what he did for me. I've personalized what he's done for me on that cross. I know that, yes, he died for a lot of people, but ultimately, in my heart, I realized that he died for me personally. He actually took my sin on the cross. Mine. And I said last week, I don't get that but I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for it. So what do you do? Well, I'm, I have an attitude of gratitude regardless of the circumstances. That is actually the definition of joy. You know, what is joy? Attitude of gratitude regardless of circumstances. Joy and gratitude are really tied together. The more grateful you are to Jesus for what he's done, the more joy will be shown in your life. Right? So this gratitude, this (laughs) awe-inspired understanding of what Jesus has done for me and for you leads us to want to proclaim him in every area of our life. I think one of the things that the church lacks is not just ours, I think across the board, is the excitement of being reminded of what Jesus has done. The gospel should never get old. You wake up in the morning, I have breath in my lungs. Why? Because the Lord saw fit by his grace to allow me another day. And in that I go, I have been blood bought, so what does my day look like? It should look like whatever's gonna bring glory to him. And then I find great joy in that. Why? Because I'm grateful. I'm grateful. How's your gratitude? You know, I, I try to say things sometimes when I preach that I think people think but don't say. And I, I've just found that to be helpful and as authentic as I can possibly be. I, I think that oftentimes the church looks at Jesus and says, I am so grateful that you saved me, but that's for the future. Thanks that one day I get to go to heaven. And we miss it. We miss that he has saved you not just for eternity, but eternity began the moment that you professed Jesus as Lord. Your eternity with him began that way. It starts now. Right this second. There's something in us that says, well, what then there's some urgency there. Yeah, there should be. There should be some urgency. I've talked to some people and they're like, you know, I just want Jesus to come back. And I agree with them. I hope he comes back like now. Dang it. Um, But when you ask somebody why, 
oftentimes the answer that you get when you start to dig is not because they just desire to be in the presence of Christ. It's because they want to be relieved of the burdens. Now, I get that, right? I've, I say every week, sin-cursed body, sin-cursed world, this is hard. It's hard. If you want easy, don't put your faith and trust in Jesus. It's hard. But our greatest motivation should be always Jesus. Our greatest motivation for Jesus to come back should be grounded in the fact that now I'm personally with him. And I'll be honest with you, I can't wait to see him. Every, Every time I think and personalize the gospel to me, it makes me emotional, but it can only take me so far because I long to look in his eyes and see that love. And it, that should be the desire and motivation of every Christ follower. I, I don't, I'm at a point where I can read scripture and I go, this is great, I love this, it's truth, I know, but Jesus, just do whatever you want. I just want to see you. I can't wait. I'm a hugger. Right? I am. Um, being a hugger culturally is getting more and more difficult as we go, to be honest. So I just can't wait for that perfect hug from Christ. Can't wait. Like, I feel like he gives me proverbial hugs constantly. Every time I hug Matt Love, I'm like, yeah, this is what it's like. <laughs> right? I didn't call Matt Love Jesus. Don't take it that way. But I'm ready for that. I'm ready for the embrace. Why? Because when you wrap your life by his grace in every way around a person that you've never personally met and seen face to face, that's weird when you think about it. I want to see him. I'm jealous that Paul saw him. I think it's okay to be jealous about stuff like that. Do you long for him? Is there an aching? Right? Like, when that's there, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't blow it. It doesn't mean that everything that we do is grounded in what he would call good. But what it does mean is that you have a better shot at it. The more gratitude you show, the more you desire you choose to be with him, the more you want him in your life, the higher the probability that what you do is going to be edifying to him, right? Is it possible that maybe the reason that we blow it so often is because our gratitude is so low? When I was a, a youth pastor, I used to ask the students all the time, if Jesus were to come back right now, would you be disappointed? And sometimes because students are honest, and they should be, they would say, I think I would be. Like, I've got all this life I want to live. I want to date, and I want to kiss, and I want to get married, and all the stuff that comes with that. I, I want kids someday. I have ambitions that I want to pursue. I, I want to make something of myself. I, 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 I think it's a good litmus test to see where you really stand, Right? I mean, honestly, there are things in my life that I look forward to that I don't, I think, I hope they're grounded in Christ. But I do know that I'm in a position in my life where I would say I'll take Jesus over anything. Anything. Um, I'll take Jesus over my wife. And that's the way that it should be. It says that we're to be grounded in the doctrine so that the good works can occur. I think, I think that's so important, but why? It says these things are excellent and profitable for people. I love that he used the words profit. You know why? Because every single person in here relates to that, right? If you're currently investing in the stock market, you know there's no profit and it eats at you right? 
Your 401ks have dropped. There's no profit. Oftentimes, especially in this country, we are a profit-driven country. That's reality. And we will, we will make decisions based upon the result, based upon the profitability. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that is reality. I will do this because it produces more profit than this. That, I don't even necessarily think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, Paul's using it here. But we have to look at it beyond monetary value, right? There, as a pastor, okay, I'm just going to tell you a little secret, and this is going to sound cold for some of you. I tend to spend my time with the, where I see the most profit. And I'm talking about people. Like, I don't know if you guys have grasped this, but how many people did Jesus get close to? Twelve. How many were in the inner circle? Three. Like, I've always felt like, man, if Jesus could only really disciple three people, am I arrogant enough to think that I can do better? So what do you do? You, you pick who the Lord, and it has nothing to do with people. Sometimes, to be really honest, I'm not the best person to disciple you. Maybe there's not a click. Maybe I've said something already that you're like, I didn't like that, so I'm not going to listen to what he has to say. Whatever, right? I don't like his hair. I don't like that he's a Pats fan. (laughs) Okay, and cool. So I may not be the best person to disciple you. So who do I spend my time with? Where I see the most profit, where the Holy Spirit is allowing me to be used in the life of someone else. It doesn't mean I ignore everybody else. It's where I invest my time the most. You do the same thing. If you've ever worked a job and been in charge of people, where do you want to spend the most time? The individuals that provide the most profit. Why? Because that's what you're being held accountable to by your boss. We, we have to, we process this way because we're allowed to in Scripture. Are you spending your time, your energies, your money, your resources where the most profit is given? There's a reason why so many years ago we moved to Boston. Do you know why? Because we felt like this is a dark place. We want to see revival in this city. There's a lot of opportunity for profit here. Spiritual profit. So you dive in. A lot of times I'll go to places and I've been asked to speak. In fact, I've got a bunch of speaking engagements coming up this week. I guess, please pray for me. I take it very seriously to go represent you. Um, and I'll, I'll be preaching maybe in a church or at a conference. And I'm sitting in the, the space and I'm like, man, it feels like everybody in this town knows Jesus, right? So the profitability for a pastor that's serving there looks different than the profitability here. There's still profit, I think. You look for it. It changes. In your life right now, there are opportunities that have been placed before you that could produce profit that you are disobediently not taking advantage of. And I don't know what those are, but you do. How do you know? Because you feel it here. It keeps coming back. It's driving you a little bit. Maybe it wakes you up at night. Maybe you keep talking about it. Maybe it's so deep ingrained in you that you haven't talked about it because you're scared. Right? And that's the Holy Spirit going, hey, there's an opportunity here for you. I have something for you. It may not look like what you wanted it to be. So I'm speaking at this conference this, this coming week. And it's, I don't even know why they chose me to do this. It seems really weird. I am the worst administrator on the planet, but that seems to be what they're asking me to talk about. And so I've taken this kind of a different way. And one of the things that I've told them as I'm addressing these pastors is you have to hold on to the vision of God very tightly. But you have to do it in a hand that's open. And that, those things sound contradicting. The vision of God is what? The will of God. 
right? The will of God. It is you are to be a part of the Great Commission. You are to live your life for the glory of Jesus. You are to grow where you are till he moves you. You are to serve. You are to do good works out of the gratitude of what Jesus has done for you for the glory of Jesus alone. That is his will, right? However, when I say it has to be open-handed, it's we don't dictate the method by which he chooses to accomplish that. And what I have found in my life is that when I am so overwhelmingly in attempting to control the method that he's going to see his vision come to fruition, I fail every time. And usually it's wrapped around, I want this now. So I will make the decisions that will elevate the vision that I think should be happening as quickly as possible. You know what's fascinating about Scripture? The people that Jesus called that were the most effective in Scripture seem to have the most time in the desert. Like, you don't think that Abraham was like, man, you promised that if I leave here and follow you, you'll give me a land. And he's like, dude, it's been a while. Where's the land? But we forget that if we're dictating the method, then what we're actually dictating is how Jesus is going to use us in the process. And we don't want to do that. Everything that has transpired since we've come to Boston <laughs> has looked nothing like what we anticipated it would be. But you are sitting in the, the fruition of the vision. And I can't take a single ounce of credit for it. Why? Because it's not the way I would have done it. It's phenomenal. We want to rush it, right? Instead of growing it. I think a big component of good works in obedience is allowing the Holy Spirit to, to, to convict us to do the works that He desires, not necessarily the works that we want to do because we think it enhances or propels us. Sometimes a good work is taking a nap. There's this thing in Scripture called rest. God loves you enough to say, hey, rest. Because you're not going to be no good for me unless if you're tired. Sometimes the most holy thing that you can do is <laughs> what's hard. Remain in the desert. Right? We have pictures of that in Scripture all over the place. I think one of the other things that we miss on this is we think that we, we want to take good works and define good works by things that are so radically awesome outwardly. But I think some of the most impactful good works in my life have been things that you guys don't even know about. Right? And you never will. Because maybe it's something that I did over here, but it changed something in here. A good work can happen internally, right? If I'm willing to open my heart to what Jesus has for me. Jesus, don't just do good works through me, do good works in me. So it's things like you have the, sometimes you have the power to make the difference. Not only for the life of someone else, but the life and what goes on inside your own heart. That's a good work. It doesn't, I, I always, it's, it's fun, like we're part of these networks and I always think it's interesting that the questions they ask for their metrics are always, how many baptisms have you done? And some years we've said zero. How much money is coming in and how many people are showing up on a Sunday morning? And I'm like, eh. 
If we're going to measure everything that we do and the good works that are done by just the size of anything, I think we've missed it because Jesus built into 12. And I'm not saying numbers don't matter. Every number is a person. But when we take that philosophy and put it into our own life in an attempt to be discipled in obedience to Jesus, it screws everything up. It really does. Thinking about your week. I want to make this as real as I can. I want you to process your week for just a second. What was most profitable? By this standard. I guarantee you something was there. You might say, wow, you know what was most profitable? My quiet time with the Lord. It doesn't have to be this huge thing. It, and that's huge. But what was most profitable? What was most profitable last month? This is what Paul is saying we should be focused on. Like, I've come to the realization that I can't do everything. I can't. I, I can talk to a certain number of people. I can impact a certain number of lives by the grace of Jesus. I can spend my time doing certain things. I can only take on so much responsibility. That's all I've got. I've have, I have what I have. What would happen if in the body of Jesus, people went, man, I've been gifted in these areas. When I look at my life, this is what's most profitable for the kingdom, and that becomes my focus. Isn't that what the body is supposed to be? I mean, I'll, you know, people that will, like, they'll come to me and they're like, and I'm watching them, and I'm watching like, them be profitable in relationships, and they're like, I really want to teach, and I'm like, who are you teaching? How do you, like, stay in your sweet spot. Stay where things are profitable. I'm not saying don't learn to teach, but what I am saying is why are you longing for something outside of where Jesus is producing great joy? I, what, I've, what I've learned over time is that people are like, like, I always call myself, like, if I, okay, the body, right? You have this body imagery. I mean, I'm the toe, right? I'm probably the little toe, right? And I'm like, I don't want to be a little toe anymore. I want to be a nose. That's weird. And so you spend so much time working towards something that the Holy Spirit hasn't necessarily gifted you in and you don't see profit in just because you want it. And what I think over time happens is it just completely derails effectiveness. Right? Whether it be wisdom or I've just made enough mistakes, which I think is actually wisdom at times, and I haven't figured this out, but I know in my life right now, I'm going, I want to spend my time where I see the Holy Spirit moving the most. And I don't want to make that up. I don't. I don't want it fabricated. I want to really dive in and go, Lord, where are you actually using me? How can I enhance that? Because I believe that is you speaking to me because it's only effective if you move anyway. So where are you most profitable? Verse 9, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Majority of my time is often in this. And I hate that. And I think if you're very honest with yourself, you're going to say the same thing. Now I'm trying to figure out if that's my fault or somebody else's fault. I mean, Paul is, I mean, we could go through each one of these. They all have a very specific meaning and they're great. But the reality is what he's saying is there are things 
that you can participate in that are unprofitable for the kingdom. And most of these revolve around just being a pain. <laughs> constant complaining, constant questioning, constant dissension, constant minor issues. I had a great conversation with somebody last week about something really important, okay? And I told them, I told them this story, and I thought it was fascinating. Like, I think about it all the time, and it, this story doesn't have anything to do with it. We just got on this topic, and I, I was talking a story about Spurgeon, right? Where Spurgeon, who may be one of the greatest preachers that's ever preached, right? And he preached this sermon, and he writes this in his notes, where he just, he felt like, like there's times when I walk down from the platform, and I'm like, Kevin, that wasn't good. Like, I, I wish I want to redo right? Because my brain moves fast, and so sometimes I don't feel like I'm trying to get too much out too quickly, and it doesn't come across well. So, there, but there's other times when I walk down, I'm like, I, you know what? I felt like I said what the Holy Spirit asked me to say. So I will call that profitable, okay? Like, it happens. But Spurgeon, he, he, he said in this moment, he had come down, and he was like, thank you, Jesus, for giving me the grace to say what needed to be said. And this little lady walks up to him. And apparently, like, all these people had come to Christ through his preaching. Like, there was this amazing, like, response. And this little lady comes up to him and says, I just want to talk to you about where the candles are placed in the service. Like, I, I didn't like the, where the candles were. And I got to think that at that point, Spurgeon's telling the story because he's like, I don't have time for this. Like, this is really dumb and petty, right? But, and I've had this happen. I've literally had, like, or you have somebody come up and I'll have somebody come up and say, and this was how, uh, happened in California, so don't start pointing fingers at people, where somebody came up and they're like, Kevin, you really gave it to those sinners today. And, I'm, and I want to say, like, you were the person I was talking to, even though I wasn't. I've never preached a sermon to one person or the thought of some, per some person, right? But it's like they missed it. And, and what I'm realizing is that when you constantly are hearing that in the lives of people, you realize that's what they're focused on. You're focused on such small things that don't matter. And that's what your life is being revolved around. And he's saying, avoid that. You know what the worst one in the church is? Did you hear what this person said? Uh, the gossip in this body is horrendous. Everybody thinks I don't hear stuff, but I do. I really hear everything. Because the person that you're gossiping to then comes to me. Why? Because they're a gossip. I hear it all, I think. I get to hear everything that people say about me. That's fun, right? It's okay. But I, what I'm saying is, what a waste of time. What a waste of time. And if that's you, I'm just going to tell you flat out, you're wasting other people's time. You've just brought them into your unprofitability. Imagine what would happen if you were being profitable and brought them into that. That's amazing to think about. But bringing somebody into your unprofitability, pretending it's profitable, Paul would say, whew, that's rough. That's rough. In fact, let's see, he, he moves on. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Those are strong words. Knowing that such a person is wrapped, is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. I, I don't want this to be negative, I just want you to think. Because when I say like gossip is bad in this church, it's across every church. Every church. When I say that we do a lot of things that are unprofitable and we spend a lot of time in that, it's not just us. It's across the board. 
I read a statistic once that compared the number of individuals who claim to be Christ followers compared to the number of individuals who have nothing to eat in this world. Did you know that there are more Christ followers than people who don't have anything to eat? Process that for just a moment. And how profitable are you being? You're like, man, it cuts, but it's important. I don't believe that this means that we're supposed to be spending every single day, every single minute, every single ounce of our existence just making sure people are fed because I also know, like I said, there's a thing for rest in here. We can take this to become very legalistic. But I think what Paul is asking us to do is be a little more discerning and understanding of what would be profitable and what isn't. Play your part. Quote, quote Bill Belichick here. Do your job. You can't play your part if you don't know what it is. Pray. It's not being hidden from you, I promise. I promise you. Likelihood is, if you don't know, the people that know you best do. Be humble enough to listen to them. Have a conversation with somebody you trust and say, what do I do that's profitable for the kingdom? You know, we all have those moments where we're kind of funky. We smell funky, we act funky, right? So if you're in one of those, I mean, it can come from sickness, it can come from depression, it can come from whatever. If you're in one of those, Ask them what was profitable before, right? I get in those, and I have to ask. Christy, remind me. What was profitable before? Where was the Lord using me? Be content. I do believe this. You're never stuck. Never. You're not. It's one of the worst things I hate Christ for is coming and saying, I'm stuck in this life. And I'm like, no, you're not stuck. You're breathing. You know Jesus. He cares for you. He loves you. He gives you purpose. If you're feeling stuck, it just tells me you're not fulfilling the purpose he's given you. So let's stop saying you're stuck and start saying, what am I not doing that I should be? But, even in the midst of that, if you're stuck, I hate my job. Just get a new job. Why don't make as much money? Well, what's more important? And we're never stuck. So be content. If you like, find an area where you're content in, in just existing in the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and knowing Jesus more. The last little thing here I'll say before we move on is don't embrace drama. Don't embrace drama. Drama's not profitable. It's not. And I don't know what drama looks like for you. I can probably define it for me. It's going to look a little bit different. I go through drama in here. You don't see the drama but it's there. And so I go, Lord, please get my mind thinking in a profitable way. Right? And then don't embrace drama here. And I'm not saying, we have to handle stuff. We have to. Conversations need to be had. You have to handle things. But don't embrace drama. Some of you just love drama. In fact, if your life's content, you're going to find a way to produce it. Don't be that person. Everything can be okay. 
We end with these words. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. What I want to suggest to you is that these last few verses are a picture of everything I've just talked about. I love it. What I see in these names, and I don't know, I know one of these people studied them well. Two. I, we don't have a whole lot of information about these individuals, but what I do see is a unity amongst brotherhood of individuals who are doing their job and glorifying Jesus. And that to me is beautiful. I mean, Paul, who is the elder, is literally going, hey, we got all these guys, we're going to start moving pieces here. One of them, it says, is a lawyer. Right? A lawyer is likely not in vocational ministry. But even the lawyer, he's like, hey, I need the lawyer to move over to here so the rest of you make sure that the lawyer has everything that they need to make this happen. Isn't that cool? That's, that's a beautiful picture of how the body's supposed to function. It, there's so much written here. I, I mean, I don't even want to get into it, but what does it look like for the lawyer to have everything they need? Well, we're talking about they need to be released of what they're currently doing in, in a healthy way. They need the resources and time and money to accomplish whatever it is that he's asking them to do. And that means that everybody else around them has to step up to make it happen. Why? Because sending that lawyer there is profitable. And now, what's profitable for me? Well, I've got money. I can give to that. I've got time. I can volunteer there and pick up some of the slack. You follow? Like, we don't see that here, but do you realize what's happening? People in this world are functioning in their giftedness. It's moving, it's happening. It's beautiful. Verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Uh, Pastor Michael, a while back, gave an analogy about a tree, right? Like an apple tree produces what? Apples. And the whole point was, you know, what you put your time into is what you're going to receive. This is a little bit different. The question is, is there fruit? Like, you're a tree. It's a cool image. You're a tree. You're a fruit tree. I don't know what fruit you're going to produce. I don't know, right? You pick. Give me a fig tree. I like bananas. I'll be a banana tree. The question is, is fruit being produced? Did you know that a, a tree can only produce fruit if it's healthy? Like, the last thing... So I was a biology major. I took way too much botany, okay? And I'm not even the best botanist. But I will tell you right now that if you want to see a flower bloom or you want to see fruit on a tree, that requires more energy than anything else. The plant's first desire is survival. The plant's last desire is production. Right? I've got to survive first. If I don't survive, I can't produce. So survival, survival, survival. Wow, I'm surviving. I'm beyond survival. I'm thriving. Poof. Out comes the flower. Boom. There's the banana. He is tying our ability to be fruitful to our profitability and where we're spending our time, energies, monies, talents. Isn't that interesting? What a cool picture. It wraps it all up for us in a nice, neat little package. It requires that we have good doctrine. It requires that we understand the gospel. It requires that you understand that you are a blood-bought individual. Your life is no longer your own. That Jesus invites you to come and see and then turns it to come and die. That's discipleship. Then he says, hey, I've gifted you with some things. I've got some plans for you. I've got purpose for you. It's not hidden. Do your job. 
And when you're doing that with the right motive under the right guise under the right doctrine for the glory of Jesus, do you know what will happen? Fruit. Fruit. You produce fruit. You're no longer the, 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 the tree that somebody walks by and is like, oh my gosh, somebody give that plant some water. You are now the tree that somebody walks by and like, I want that. Look at the beauty of that life. Now, I'm going to flip everything upside down for you. This is our privilege. In Christ, every single Christ follower has the ability to be beautiful and produce fruit for Jesus. Every single one. That is your privilege and your honor. Embrace it. How's it start? Good doctrine. What's next? Understanding what's profitable in your life. What's next? Doing it. Enjoy. Giving glory to Jesus. What's last? Beauty. Impact. Purpose. Greater joy. Verse 15, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. And he ends with grace be with you. Why? Because we can't do it without his grace. Grace be with you. You have all the grace that you need in Christ. Tap it. I define grace as the desire and the power to do God's will. He will give you the desire. He will give you the power. Tap it. There's a couple of different people in here. One, I'll classify two. One, you, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard the gospel. Maybe this is the first time that you've heard that you actually can develop purpose in your life, that you don't have to find it. You find Christ. Christ finds you. And then he gives you that purpose. You don't have to go on a pilgrimage. You don't have to find yourself. Jesus has already found you. He knows you're there. He created you. You're not lost. You're lost, but you're not lost. You're not lost in the sense that you have to figure it all out. You're lost in the sense that until you're tapped to Christ, you can't do good, you can't produce, you can't develop fruit. If that's you, I'm going to challenge you. Give your life to Jesus. Don't ignore it. It can't be done without him. It can't. The only thing that can be done without him is all of the, indi- all of the things that he warned us against that are unprofitable. So what you have to come to is to realize that there is no profitability without Christ. Give your life to Jesus. I, every week I tell you, you can talk to me, you can talk to the person next to you, just turn and say, do you know Jesus? They say, yes, say, let's grab some coffee, let's talk about it, ask your questions. It just requires you to put your faith in Christ. For those of you who know Christ, the book of Titus is about discipleship. It is taking the fundamentals of the faith and saying, get out of the fundamentals. Start pushing. Stop making excuses. Be profitable. Allow the Holy Spirit to use you to develop fruit. So what does that look like for each of us? It's different. Every one of you have different life circumstances. Every one of you are dealing with different things. A lot of the things you've chosen in your life, and they're good and they're bad, whatever. We deal with the mistakes and the sins and the ramifications of those. We deal with all of this stuff that we bring into our life on top of all of the other things that people bring into our lives. And everyone's a little bit different, but the ultimate goal is what? Find in your life where the Holy Spirit can use you to be profitable so that no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, you are producing fruit. You can produce fruit in your lowest, worst times in your life if you're still living for the glory of Jesus. There is no reason for any Christ follower to ever not be bearing fruit. And if you're not, then why? You're missing it. 
Don't miss it. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for who you are. Lord, I thank you that your word at the same time in every way possible is convicting and encouraging and Lord, it is crazy. Lord, I ask that you would move in here. I pray that if there's anyone, I know there is, there's people in this room who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, I ask that you would regenerate their heart that you would remove the heart of stone, that you would give them a heart of flesh, that you would push back the darkness, that your light would shine on them. Lord, the Holy Spirit would, would force them to acknowledge you and push for you and desire you. Lord, give them faith. And Lord, give them someone to talk to. Lord, I pray for your church. Lord, we desire to be a church that impacts this community. We want to see fruit in East Boston. We want to see fruit in greater Boston, ultimately throughout the world. But Lord, a bunch of dead plants can't produce fruit together. So I pray that as individuals, we would understand what's profitable. We would commit to produce the fruit that you desire to see in our lives. And that collectively, that would produce such an amazing orchard that everyone would want to come. Lord, convict our hearts. Teach us. Help us to desire you above everything else. And Lord, give us the grace we need to make the changes that are required to make them. We love you and we thank you for your patience with us. Fill us with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.